The Institute of Art and Ideas is excited to announce Closer to Truth as an official partner for our upcoming How the Light Gets In Festival at Hey on Why, happening this year, May 24th to 27th. Closer to Truth examines humanity's deepest questions with the world's greatest thinkers, from Nobel laureates and renowned scientists to theologians and best-selling authors. For 20 years, Closer to Truth has explored the deep questions of cosmos, consciousness, and meaning. This year, host Robert Lawrence Kuhn journeys to new depths with their philosophy of biology season, exploring topics like evolution, race, alien intelligences, sex and gender, and much more. Get early access to full episodes from this brand new season by registering for a free membership at their website, closertotruth.com. Discover the fundamental issues of existence, engage new and diverse ways of thinking, and seek out your own answers with Closer to Truth. Hello. Hello. And welcome to Philosophy for Our Times, bringing you the world's leading thinkers on today's biggest ideas. I'm Ben, a member of the editorial team here at the IAI. And I'm Charlie, and I'm senior producer. So, Charlie, today we've got a world by any other name. This was a debate that featured philosopher Arif Ahmed, radical linguist Ruth Kempson, and philosopher and author of Closure, Hilary Lawson. It's a debate that took place at the 2022 How the Light Gets In Festival in London, the philosophy festival produced by the team here at the IAI. So, Charlie, tell us a little bit about this one. Yeah, so this debate explores the limits of language and confronts whether or not language can adequately describe the world. The idea being that we've never actually got a final account of how language maps onto the world. It's always going to be the case that we're going to be left in this sort of level of uncertainty. Mm. Well, what is it that could bridge the gap if not language? Or do we have to question the nature of reality wholesale? Well, that's the idea that Hilary Lawson, author of Closure, put forward. He thinks that paradoxes of self-reference and on top of that, the fact that we have never got to a final answer of how language maps onto the world suggests that it's not that we need to keep chipping away at the problem of how language mm-hmm. describes the world in the way that analytic philosophy wants to do now, but rather we have to radically overhaul our understanding of reality. Well, sounds very interesting and plenty to unpack there. But before we do, remember if you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to like and subscribe on your platform of choice and visit iai.tv for hundreds more podcasts, videos and articles from the world's leading thinkers. Now, it's time to hand over to our host for this debate, Joanna Cavenna. Thanks very much. Welcome to this debate. For much of the 20th century, language was seen as central to our understanding of the world. The limits of my language mean the limits of my world, argued Wittgenstein. There's nothing outside of the text, claimed Derrida. But now it seems that language is being jettisoned by philosophers as either containing puzzles that are insoluble or irrelevant to the real issues facing us. The American philosopher Hilary Putnam went as far to say that the project described the relationship between between language and the world is a shambles. So should we conclude that the puzzle of language and its relation to the world is not solvable? Or is it essential we crack the problem and not give up? Or should we focus not on the medium, but the message and return to an era before the so-called linguistic turn when language was largely seen as a transparent vehicle of our beliefs? And here to discuss this, we have a highly illustrious to a panel of speakers. We have Ruth Kempson, who is a distinguished professor emerita of linguistics at King's College London, and her work pre- presents a transformational challenge to the foundations of current linguistics. 
We also have Hilary Lawson, who is a philosopher and an outspoken critic of philosophical realism. And he's best known for his theory of closure, which puts forward a non-realist metaphysics. And we also have Arif Ahmed, who is a professor in philosophy at the University of Cambridge. Um, and he writes on rational choice, Wittgenstein and religion. And Arif campaigns for free speech in universities. This has been going on for over a decade. And most recently, he led a campaign to liberalise Cambridge's free speech policy. So the form for the debate is that I will in a moment turn to our panel and I'll ask them each the same question in turn, give them three minutes to set out their initial thoughts, and then we'll move to a general debate among the panel, roughly divided into three sections, and then we'll have questions from the audience. So the critical question that I'm going to present first to Ruth Kempson for three minutes is, is the puzzle of language and its relation to the world fundamentally unsolvable, Ruth? Thank you. Well, I'm a linguist, so I have to answer the question, is the language puzzle not solvable with the answer, no, it is solvable. However, I wholeheartedly agree that conventional views of language, of making a dichotomy between language ability and language use uh, have to be abandoned. Uh, and the concept of language as a set of, it's constantly seen as a sort of jigsaw puzzle from God on high, looking at down at these bits which have fixed meanings, which have to get put together. That also has to be abandoned. The shift is to see language as a process. It's a tool for interaction. It's rules being conditional actions as to how to build up representations of content incrementally. Think of what you're doing right now uh, relative to an immediate and evolving context. This is the way we define language all the way down. We have general procedures anticipating structure and words too are defined as routinized conditional update actions relative to context. We're always building as we go fast. Uh, now these are shared by speaker and hearer alike on this view. So in effect, we're incrementally building stuff together in tandem. There's no syntax other than this. This is what the grammar amounts to, that's us. Now, the consequence is that what others have seen as dif disfluences of conversation, we're all told by linguists conversations are full of errors, people don't know what they're doing, you can just ignore the mistakes. But once you shift to language as process, then in fact all these mechanisms that we have to confirm, to correct, to interrupt, they're all part of the tools for interaction which we can use in order to come to successful exchanges. So communication succeeds as long as the overlap we have in our underlying assumptions are sufficient for the purpose to hand. And if they're not, we can always query and clarify. But it's not always in harmony, but in virtue of me going blah, blah, you listening to the blah, blah, we are in effect interacting. Well, we hope so, the questions and answers. Uh, and these interactive capacities, they're all an intrinsic part of what it means to have language as a processing tool. And so it follows that the correspondence, in answer to the question, the correspondence between language and the world has to be secondary. And moreover, it has to be approximate. Now, there's much more to be said because it's critical that words are not associated with fixed correspondences. They're mere labels pointing in the direction of putative construals, given the immediate context of other words occurring in the context. And that's what we need and what we think we can model. Now, I'm actually going to shift now and ask instead, how on earth could a linguist have got to this point? And the answer is that I was trying to do things for my friends who are pragmatists, and they wanted, I thought they needed, a model of how we actually build up structure uh, in to promote understanding in context. 
And I knew I couldn't do it on my own, so I turned to logicians and computationists. But the result of it was that we had this view of building up things incrementally. And one after another, all the puzzles which syntacticians or semanticists had fell into our laps, where for other frameworks, they all have to be stipulated with huge amounts of ad hoc uh, and baroque structures. And so we decided it was a grammar adopted by both speakers and hearers. Now, if that is correct, if, as an assumption, it has the immediate consequence that we can interact, that the phenomena of conversational interaction comes as an immediate consequence. Because I can start off, and you can finish the sentence. You might want to disagree with me, but that's fine. I can start, and you can take over. Now, that is completely impossible to express in standard orthodox views of grammar. They just have to ignore it, and in fact, they do. Uh, but there's much more to say about the intrinsic non-determinism, and then I'm going, to, I'm going to not do that, but I'm going to stop and say just this. In order to, to define language as a system of tools with flexibility to operate in an evolving context, which we're all doing all the time, then its concepts of process, underdeterminism, change, growth, those are the central underpinnings to explanation of not just what language is about, but what language is. And that's what we call dynamic syntax. Thanks very much. Minutes. That was brilliant as well. Yes, spot on. Thank you very much. <laughs> Thank you. Yes, applause for that too. Thank you. And I'll now turn to Hilary Lawson with the same question, Hilary. So the question again is, is the puzzle of language and its relation to the world fundamentally unsolvable? Thank you. Well, I, I think if by a solution we mean that we might provide a map of how language relates to the world, I think the answer is no. I don't think it's possible to provide a map of how language relates to the world. And for a very straightforward reason, a reason that Wittgenstein identified right at the outset of the linguistic turn, which is that, and it's relatively easily expressed really, it's that uh, you can't escape the language in order to describe how it relates to something which is outside of language. After all, another way of putting it would be to say the words language and the world are words in language, aren't they? The word the world hasn't escaped from language. It, 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 it doesn't somehow get at the world. It's a word in language. So you can't from within language say what the relationship is between language and something outside of it, because any account you give is going to be in the context of language. So he concluded, we just can't say anything uh, about that relationship. Now, I think one way of thinking about what's going on here is that to ask what is the relationship between language and the world is a bit like asking what's the relationship between cabbages and bicycles. Well, the best answer is there isn't a relationship. Rather than to try and provide one, which is uh, exceptionally tricky because <laughs> there isn't one in the first place. And it seems to me that there isn't a relationship between language and the world in the sense that language is not describing the world. I agreed with much of the things that Ruth was saying, but I would actually go a bit further. I don't think that language is approximating to re reality. I think it's got nothing uh, to do with it. And... Um, the challenge for contemporary philosophy is not to describe the relationship between language and the world, but to account for how it is that 
even though language doesn't have anything to do with reality, uh, or, or let's stick to the word world actually, doesn't have anything to do, to do with the world, that nevertheless it is so powerful and it's able to seemingly describe things so precisely and that we can share it to talk, to, to talk about what seems to be a shared reality. And that seems to me to be the central puzzle. And it's one I've spent a lot of time thinking about. And in, in an instantaneous sort of indication of the sort of answer that I'm going to offer to you that, I would say, instead of thinking of language as describing the world, think of language as holding the world as something. And by holding the world as something, we intervene on the basis of holding it like that. And we can refine that way of holding the world based on how it seems from within that model, within that theoretical framework. And we can refine it ever more accurately, but it never gets to be like the stuff out there because it can never reach out there. It's a different sort of stuff. And, um, uh, but nevertheless, it can be immensely uh, powerful. And so think of language as a metaphor by which we can achieve all sorts of extraordinary things, but not as describing how things are in some ultimate sense. Thanks very much, Hilary. Thank you. And so now I'll pose the same question to Arif Ahmed. Is the puzzle of language and its relation to the world fundamentally unsolvable? Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Um, I think my comments will largely be agreeing with, with some of the things that Ruth Kempson has, has said. Um, I think I'll actually say three things. So first of all, I'll say, I'll make a comment on what, what Hillary just said, uh, and then I'll say something about a couple of misconceptions that I think can exist about this, about this problem. But first of all, my answer is, no, it's not insoluble. The answer, it, is, it is soluble. Um, one thing I would say is that I think there might be, there, there might be a mistake in thinking that somehow the fact that, the fact that we're talking about language means that we can't actually describe it fully in language, as though you can't use language to talk about itself. It's true that Wittgenstein sometimes seems to have had ideas like that in his early work, but it's not obvious why any of that should be true. I mean, after all, you can write about handwriting in handwriting. You can say something about the English language in English, and it's not clear there's anything you can't say about it in English that you could say in another language. So it's not obvious why this sort of reflexivity, um, uh, eye-catching as it is, raises any insoluble problems for the project of understanding language, either scientifically or in a more sort of philosophical way, if there's a difference. The other two things I want to say, first of all, I guess, is that we should be sceptical that there is a single problem, which is about the relationship between one thing called language and another thing called the world. Wittgenstein himself wrote, not in his earlier work, but in his later work, um, he emphasized the fact that languages, like games, come in a very large variety of things. And there may be no one thing in common between all the different linguistic, all the different behavioral phenomena that we call language. So if you just think in the, in the case of words, if you think about words we use to describe people's mental states, words like conditionals, or pronouns, or words describing causation, or the words for relations, all the variety of words that we have in our language. There's no particular reason to think that they should all function in the same way, or that we can say anything very useful in general about how all of them work. Similarly, you might think there's no one relationship between language and the world, but rather there are many different relationships between this bit of language and this bit of the world, and that bit of language and that bit of the world. And we can say how these words are used, and this picks up on, on one of the things that Ruth Kempson emphasized, um, in a piecemeal way, which is nonetheless scientific. 
The third thing I want to say, I guess, is just to emphasize that, of course, language is, is like anything else, it's not magic, it's not some sort of metaphysical achievement. It's a natural phenomenon, and it grew out of natural phenomena. The animals have some things like languages, so animals have various cries that have evolved into language. We can see why language would exist simply the, from the fact that we need to be able to signal to each other in various situations, and some philosophers like David Lewis and others have seen languages arise from the sort of game theory type situations where you're trying to signal to someone else about something in a state of ignorance, or the other person's in a state of ignorance. That can explain a great deal about how language works, and what it illustrates more importantly is that language, just like everything else in the world, is a part of nature and should be studied as a part of nature and not as some additional metaphysical achievement uh, that's, that somehow achieves some kind of magic that, that we're incapable of understanding. Thank you. Thanks very much, Aris. Thank you. Thank you. So we're going to open with a little bit more about Wittgenstein and this idea that I cited in the opening remarks that the limits of my language are the limits of my world. And Arif, I wanted to start with you in terms of you saying maybe the situation isn't as bleak as that. I mean, that's the Tractatus and the original view. And I was thinking also, Owen Barfield makes this point about, he says, maybe it's not as bad as Wittgenstein says, because as you said, I mean, he says, Wittgenstein says, we can't see the back of our heads, but you're in a way arguing that there are ways to do that, that you can look through the evolution of language. So could you say a bit more about the, the progression of Wittgenstein's thoughts and your own reaction, as yes, you just thanks. mentioned? Yeah, yeah. So, so of, of course, this does pick up on, on something Hillary said as well. So the, the passage where Wittgenstein says this is in a discussion of a philosophical problem known as solipsism. And solipsism is a question, you know, the, the philosophical idea that only you exist, no, nobody else exists, everything else is a sort of phenomenon of your mind. Um, doesn't too matter too much what else he said about it, but he draws, it, he draws it a kind of analogy there where he says that it's a little bit like the visual field. That if you think about how you see things, you can't see your own eye or you can't see the eye that's doing the seeing. Well, of course, you can see your eye. You just look in a mirror. Of course, you can see your own, your own eye. Um, but he says you can't see your eye and you can't see the edge of your visual field. And that's an analogy for the kind of invisibility of something to the person who's using it and to the user of language. They can't see the foundations of their own language. Essential to that picture, of course, was Wittgenstein's idea, which he didn't wholly ever drop, which is that there's a deep relationship between thought and language. So that for his, his view in the Tractatus and the earlier work, language, thought just means a kind of inner linguistic event. So there's language that we use to speak to one another, and your thoughts are just another kind of language, and the way thought works is essentially the same as the way language works. And that's why it's literally the foundations of your language are literally unthinkable, because you'd have to understand the foundations of your thought as well. And he thinks that's something that can't be, that can't be done. Now, the reasons for my own sort of slightly more optimistic way of thinking about it are basically to, to, are based on a sort of understanding of what it means to solve these problems. You know, I think we can have scientific and naturalistic explanations of these based on predictions of how they work, how we acquire them, solving puzzles in these things, understanding what makes the difference between a child when it's born and doesn't understand language, when it achieves linguistic competence, what are the processes that go on, perhaps what are the brain processes. Once we solve those problems, there is the additional metaphysical problem about the relationship between language and reality that remains to be solved. And that, I think, was the illusion that he saw through in his later, in his later work more clearly. Yes, thank you. I mean, Henry, I want to bring you in on this. I mean, Arif is saying that you can then write about you know, handwriting in, handwriting, and so on, and that this is a possible route out of this. What would you say? And also in terms of this idea of um, one relationship, you know, that there are many forms of language in relation to this debate. Okay, so so I, I, I'll try and avoid th this becoming a, you know, conversation about what Wittgenstein did or didn't say. But um, I, I do have a different way of holding Wittgenstein 
than the one that we just had. Uh, and uh, and uh, it seemed to me that it's not that he just references this self-referential problem at one point at the end of the tractatus. It's much, much more profound than that. He, he sets out to provide a realist account of language, that is to describe how language refers to things in the world. And his whole, whole book is about trying to do that. And at the end of the book, he concludes that it's not possible because of this problem that you can't, from within language, catch sight of itself because you're trying to say what, in say how language refers to the world, you're trying to refer to something that's outside of language. The word world that you're trying to get to is uh, stuff out there, but the word stuff out and there are part of language. You can't somehow get through to it. And he concludes, as a result, that he has to throw the book away. His last words in the tractate is not, oh, this is just a little incidental remark. It's, I've got to abandon everything I've just told you throughout this book. It's all junk. So it's not an incidental thought of Wittgenstein's. And what does he do as a result? He first of all becomes a gardener, deciding the whole thing is pointless. The whole exercise of philosophy is pointless. And then the next thing that he does is he returns and he abandons trying to describe the relationship between language and the world at all. And it's not that he says, oh, there are lots of different sorts of language. They, they interact with the world in all sorts of ways. We're playing in a language game. Because although he says all of that, the point is that he can't say that and make it sound as if he's telling us how the world really is as if he's saying, oh, the world really is a language game, and we really are lost in that game. And there are really these different types of language, and they are really operating these ways. Instead, he provides us with philosophical uh, 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 sort of aphorisms to see whether we can just catch on to the idea that language is a playful game, but he doesn't want us to sort of take it seriously in the sense of thinking, oh, it really is like that, because language can't reach through. So, yes, he says all of these other things in his later work, but he's actually trying to escape from describing the relationship between language and the world. And as it happens, I don't think that's right, because I think the only way we understand the later Wittgenstein is to give him a philosophical view, which is that we are in a language game, and that's how we understand his philosophical reference. So he's told us something in the end after all, and that's why I have sought to provide a different explanation, which is why is it that language is able to do these things, even though Wittgenstein was right in the first place that we, language does not refer to a world uh, out there. It's not doing that sort of thing. And I think this surprising thing, and here I agree in a way with Ruth, I think there are a lot of things that I agree with Ruth about. I think that when you start from this very unlikely starting point that language is not describing uh, the world, it turns out that you are able to build a very precise account of how it is that language is able to achieve all of the incredible complexity that it is capable of delivering and be as powerful as it is, but it do we don't have to think that the world is somehow divided in the way that language is into things and characteristics and relations. I want to let Arif respond to that, but just before that, I want to bring you in, Ruth, because I guess for Hillary, you know, you've had some points of agreement with Hillary, and he mentioned that he, you know, he's saying something slightly beyond what you're saying, that, you know, language can approximate to the world. He's saying, obviously, these are totally distinct. So can you just well, clarify no, I, yourself I, I, on this? I mean, I have to say, I think that when anybody talks about language, they think about their problems, their world, 
uh, th that stuff out there and is it a good description or not. But if you're a linguist, you need to sit back and you think, what are these things which people call pronouns? I mean, years and years ago now, when I was working on presupposition, that was my thesis, and I'm now 78, so it's a long time ago, uh, I, you know, people were facing me with, oh, we've got a new kind of pronoun. What, five different words, he? And you really think that somebody in the street is going to say that's five different words, he is? You can't think it's just one. Now, that problem multiplies all over the place. Language is deeply what people call polysemous. It isn't fixed. It has to be flexible. Uh, and, uh, uh, and it's very important that this happens right at a lower level. So you have to think, what is it that a word does in virtue of which we think we can use it for more precise things? And that's where you have to get at it as a tool which in and of itself has to be flexible. So its units mustn't have an associated thing, but they may and they do provide clues. And indeed, you can interact with other people. And most of the time, you couldn't have a real conversation if every time I started, you interrupted me and said, what's I? Oh, sorry, what's that? You know, you just couldn't. So in the whole, we go on with this thing as though they had these good meanings, which we think correspond to what we think are of thoughts. But in fact, it's always an overlap problem. So I can chat to my friends and my, my family, knowing that we have a rich set of assumptions which we can bring to bear by the triggering of these words. And when I talk to these guys who I've only just met, the overlap may be, may be narrower, but of course it might be richer in other ways. Now, again, as a linguist, you have to step back from that and think, what is it about these tools that enable us to do this? And that's why you have, if I think, if as a linguist you're trying to understand what the phenomenon of language is, you have to get back to thinking of it as a tool which enables to construct stuff in interaction with other people, those interpretations in part depending on social conventions out there. So it's right at the crux, it's at the f language is at the fulcrum of what's social and what's psychological. And you'll never explain it if you just think it's an internal object which is mapped onto those clear, clear objects out there in the world. Do you want to hear more from the world's leading thinkers? If the answer to that question is yes, subscribe to IAI.tv for unlimited access to thousands of debates, talks, articles, academy courses and live events. Are you bored of the surface level news, politics, sports and entertainment coverage on your newsfeed? Go deeper, get the philosophy behind the news and get the latest big ideas from the world's leading thinkers on subjects at the core of the human condition, life, the universe and everything in between. It's free for the first month, and there's no commitment to pay, so subscribe now to understand the world beyond the surface level. I mean, do you want to come in on, I was thinking of this question of as if, you know, that question, is that enough for you, or are you saying there's something more empirical in this process, rather than it being a kind of closed system? Yeah, so I think I, think I, I would pick up on some of the things that Ruth said, actually. I think the, the metaphor of a tool is very helpful. Um, actually, so it's more helpful than that of a more or less opaque medium. So it's yeah. not as that you know, language is an instrument like money or something like that. It interacts with our society in various ways, lots of different ways, and there are going to be lots of different answers to these different questions about how bits of it, how bits of it function. Um, can I just go back to some of the things that Hillary yes, said? Yes, of course. Of course yeah. he's, he's, he's quite right that the way I presented Wittgenstein was you know, rather less sophisticated than you actually well, find. Well, you in had two minutes yes, in the yes, so, so very, yes, of course, very crudely. Much more um, said. Uh, so of course. It's true that there is a distinction that Wittgenstein makes and defends in some detail between what he calls saying something and showing something. So there are things that you can say, like you can talk about the weather and so on, then there are things that cannot be said, the deep truths of philosophy, as he thought, but can only be shown and they're revealed through the structure of your language and your thought. 
as a kind of inchoate signal that you get simply by virtue of having those things. That was something that he thought in his earlier work. I don't know that there's a good valid argument for thinking that any of that's true, but he did think it and he, he sort of illustrated it. Um, the other thing I would say, his attitude towards his earlier work was indeed, it wasn't so much that you just totally abandoned it, but his attitude was summed up in that famous metaphor of the ladder, that you climb a ladder and then you kick it away. And that's how he thought of his, his earlier work, the Tractatus. You, you're supposed to read it, and then when you've read it, you get into a mental state where you see all these problems vanish, and then you don't need to read it anymore. You know, and you, it's, it's, it wasn't a kind of intellectual achievement, but more a sort of psychological achievement that that happens. Um, there's an ancient metaphor which is similar, which is like if you have an emetic, and you swallow it, and the emetic voids itself, along with all the other material that it voids. That's, that's what the Tractatus is supposed to be. Um, to some extent, he didn't ab entirely abandon that picture of philosophy later on, but I do think later on he adopted a much more piecemeal approach towards thinking about language. And I think the most fruitful way to understand it, I do think, is that there's no one thing which is language, no one thing which is the world. There are lots of different relations between bits of language and bits of the world. And ultimately, we do better to understand it as an instrument or tool, as I said, rather than as a more or less opaque medium. So that's quite interesting. So all of you, in a way, agree on this idea of, you know, the, the instrumental tool. I mean, Henry, we're going to move into a sort of rough second theme, but I think we're kind of proving the answer to it anyway, which is this question of, can we just um, go back to an era before the linguistic turn, as it's called? This is this kind of focus within philosophy on language at the early, in the early 20th century, Wittgenstein and Russell. Um, part of it. Can we just pretend it didn't happen and go back to a period before when we, saw, we thought of language as transparent? I mean, clearly, I think on this panel, we can't. But Hilary, if, uh, particularly, I was interested because you've mentioned in the past that you emerged into your theory of closure in a way by looking at Wittgenstein's own account of his failure. So, I mean, we, don't, we, we can talk more about Wittgenstein or we can kind of move into this question yeah. of can we, can we just decide, let's just forget about this whole yeah. uh, and thing? And actually, I, I don't think I don't think we can just forget about it. And I think there's a real danger, uh, both you know, within the academic discipline of philosophy, but more generally, that because of the failure of being able to provide a, a, a realist theory of language, that somehow everyone's got a bit exhausted with it. And they, oh God, this is just too difficult. You know, let's, let's just ignore it. But I don't think we can ignore it because it is fundamental and what we do when we ignore it is we retreat to a sort of intuitive realism, a sort of sense of, oh, well, my words do just mean roughly what, what we think they mean. I may not be able to give a real, a decent account of how they map onto the world, but, but they do really map onto the world, don't we? And let's just forget about the fact that there seem to be a, you know, these rather technical self-referential problems, and you know, we'll leave that to some logicians to try and sort out. We don't have to worry about it. Well, I don't think that's right at all. I think the linguistic turn did correctly identify that the importance of the way that we use words changes how we see the world. And therefore, it's very important to understand how that process operates and indeed what that means for how we build our theories and how we might modify and improve them um, and, and what they can and can't do. So... Uh, as a result of that, uh, I, uh, I think from the account that, that I've given, I've tried to provide a description of that, the core process that I think is driving language. And I, I call it closure because it's the holding of that which is different as one and the same. It's the holding of things which are not something in particular as something in particular. And it's not just language that does this. I think that 
that uh, sensation does does this as well. Our senses, the whole of our way of dealing with the world is by holding it as something, and and I think that when we think of it like that, that we hold the world in in certain ways, and that's how we intervene. Um, and our sensation and our thought are responses to the world. They're not descriptions of the world. If we if we see blue, there's not blue out there. We we have held that stuff out there as blue. If we think of it as blue, you know, we have the word blue, we are holding it as blue, but it's not like that's what's out there. Um, and, and those responses to the world enable us to intervene. And I think understanding the detail of that process uh, will enable us and does enable us to build better theories. You know, the nitty gritty scientific theories that have you know, driven our, our contemporary understanding, but at the same time, explain why it is that they never arrive, why there's always problems with them, why there's always gaps. Thank you. I want to bring Ruth in on this because I was thinking as Hillary was talking about intuitive realism and you were possibly mentioning something about that when you were saying, were you, that we kind of understand each other or we, you know, we sort of know what people are saying. I mean, it is that Hillary saying that isn't enough for him. Would you say... That well, it is isn't something enough, that we can it isn't depend enough for on. me either, but for two reasons. One, I think there really is non-determinism. Uh, even yeah. when you've had clarifications, there's still, it's not the case that words really pick out those objects in any very clear way at all. But the other thing is, I think, that we, people have simply failed to understand that language is a tool for a craft. I mean, quite seriously, I can set out, I go blah, 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 and one of you can butt in and say, ha, 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 and steer it in their direction because you want to get them to see that they're right and I'm not. And we can do that all within a single sentence. And let me give you just one example. It's an example of which I'm very fond of, and I'll tell you why at the end. It was a disaster. I always, I put on something on the stove and I go and do my email and I failed to, I'd had supper out and so my husband hadn't had any supper and I thought, blast him. And I went in and I put the frying pan on. 20 minutes later, I suddenly thought, shit, and I ran to the kitchen. The flames were hitting the ceiling. The ceiling was beginning to drop down into the frying pan. And I, I picked the frying pan up and I knew you can't throw it into the sink because you get an explosion. So I went to the back door and I threw it over onto the concrete and the thing was over. Okay, now here comes the bit of language. I go into my husband and I say, I'm afraid we've had an accident. The kitchen is very badly burned. Michael then says to me, did you burn and I think, bloody hell, he's going to ask about his books. So I interrupt and I say, myself? No, fortunately not. Well, only my hair. Only my hair. And I've got very short hair, so that's really trivial. Now, in that, there's something which linguists, people like me, and you actually can do it all the time, but you, you can start one thing and you can finish it in a way which any person judging, did you burn myself, will tell you, oh, no, that's not right English. So we're building things together in such a way that we can fully understand them. But there's one other thing in there, and that is, I said I burnt the kitchen very badly. That's burn. Michael then says burn in a neutral way, and God knows what it's going to be. I then add and say myself, which would be pretty ghastly, and I say no, well, only my hair, and I've got very short hair. Now, there's actually three rather different concepts of burn in there. I mean, burning your book, well, I don't know, it's going to a metaphor. Burning my hair is not the same as burning the Amazonian forest, you know, it's, there really are very different concepts of burn. What do we do? Do we have different meaning, different words for all of those? No. The word is this thing which has to be flexible. Moreover, these rules that we talk about, that we have to, when you have a thing which says myself, you have to agree it with somebody locally to you, that can go across people. 
And the very fact that I have said these blah, blah to my husband and he comes back blah, blah in another way means that you can shift the thing in the middle. So it can't be just something which is held by one speaker, sentences which we then learn as grammar rules so that we've got a good little grammar. You can't be like that. So it's got to be this more social thing out there and the elements of the language itself have to be part of this craft of building and nobody looking at language so far has really grasped that part of it. So I always think there's something more to be done than just approximating to the world. There is a craft which we acquire and that's what control of language is partly intrinsic, I mean it's absolutely intrinsic to what a language is. Um, and that is a, I mean then we get into, Arif, I'll turn to you this question and to respond to the others. This question the burned kitchen is a uh, truth, isn't it? Somehow, you know, we're, obviously if your husband then went into the kitchen, it's not burned, then your statements... Oh, he didn't move, other he's just than, watching the telly, but yes. I mean, he might be delighted <laughs> that your statement was untrue, but yeah. So that question as well, that this suggests there is obviously some kind of verifiable link. And I also wanted to ask you, Arif, because you've done a lot of work on freedom of speech, particularly, and clearly then that is, it's important, as Henry was saying, the words that we're using clearly have an importance in that too. So perhaps if you could come back on those two. Yeah, sure. So, so I mean, I guess so, so. A couple of things. First of all, I think Ruth's example illustrates quite well um, a point, a broader point that Wittgenstein made actually, which is that in in his later work, which was that it's not because there's a particular mapping relation between words and reality that we use them in a certain way. No, no, it's because we have these uses of them that we can say that there's this or that relation between reality. So the fundamental facts about words are how we use them. We use a word to call someone. You write a word, a name on an envelope, it gets to that person. Those are the basic facts about language, and we can summarise those facts by saying a word maps onto or refers to or denotes something. That's the order of explanation, not the other way around. In connection with the point about freedom of speech, of course you're quite right, that... that uh, uh, it's essential to our use of language, the fact that we can form sentences, that we can say things that are either true or false, and indeed that we can communicate those things to one another, that makes it useful in the way, in the way that it is. And of course, because of those sorts of uses and the externalities that are created by those uses, you should be always suspicious of any kind of restrictions on, on the ways in which, ways in which we, can, we can use them. Of course, that's an argument that goes back to John Stuart Mill and Milton and back further, that free speech is, is you know, freedom of speech is generally an essential feature of not just scientific progress, but the transmission of knowledge through our society, um, uh, partly because it means people have new ideas and express them, and partly because anyone who has the authority to suppress it is inevitably going to be corrupted and use it for, for political ends. But I guess that's another discussion. Well, it's a fascinating discussion. Maybe yeah, we, the, that might come out in the questions as well. Just, so we're going to go into the final area of the debate before we do ask you for your questions. and. Actually, I just wanted to talk about, I know I want to ask you to come in and respond on all of that, Hillary, and I will just in a moment. I just want to ask Ruth briefly on this to start with, because we're talking as we end about whether we will ever uncover a truly adequate theory of how language maps onto the world. And we've already heard that there are there's scepticism about that. But in terms of this idea of adequate, I just wanted to ask our linguist, what would that I mean, what, what would that word be doing in this account then? I mean, what, what, how would we define adequate, an adequate theory of how, if, if this were possible? If it's an adequate theory yeah, of language, it has, it has to be commensurate with things which people can tell you are fact of the language. And so it has to be it's about things like words like self have to be identified locally. I mean, there are, there are facts about, I mean, there are universal facts about language 
actually, there is interaction. Language is about interaction. That's completely universal. And that's how children learn it, by interacting first with their parents, then interacting with their colleagues. So at that level, there are universals. At the way in which different languages solve that problem, uh, that's another matter. But it's still the case, it's very important in trying to address this problem, I think. It won't do just to say there are different uses of the language and it means one thing in that context, another thing in that context, and another. And you can characterize those different uses of different languages. Because that's the route which tells you you're just going to multiply ambiguities. And that is what linguists currently do. They say, oh, language is really fascinating. It's very multiply ambiguous. But anybody with common sense would say to me, well, look, if every word in every language is going to turn out to be multiply ambiguous, surely it suggests to you that the answer is somehow wrong. I mean, you know, how could a child ever learn? It'd be a complete, absolute mystery. It really can't be like that. That's why I think you have to make this shift into lo looking at language more as something which drives the process. And actually, as I say, we got to it because we were getting explanations. There were really empirical explanations and generalizations right across different languages, right across different levels of the grammar. And it was only because of that, as a perfectly ordinary working linguist, that we leapt onto this thing of saying, well, let's say this is what grammar is. Thank you. Well, Hilary, I think you, yes, you so, want to come in. Well, what I'd like to say is I think the, the, what I would call an implicit realism, or the assumption of realism, is so deeply ingrained in our psyche that it's extremely difficult to escape from it. That is, we somehow think, maybe you, you are thinking, well, th there's, there's an answer here. You know, I'm listening to these guys, and that they're going to tell me about language, or maybe they've got it wrong. I know what it, what it is, what it, where, wherever you are. But we somehow think we, we're providing answers that there's a correct answer, someone's going to come on and, and they're going to say, tick, yeah, you've got it right, you worked out how it is. And the notions that we've heard across the panel here, that, that language is about how we use it, it's a tool, we think, well, okay, we, we understand that, and I, I agree with that in some sense, but let's not imagine that we think we've cracked it, that language really is a tool. Because if it really is a tool, then then language is describing how things really are, isn't it? Oh yes, we've got it right, tick. We, we've understood, we've cracked it. The answer to the universe is seven and a half. No. No, 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 no. But you, it's we... much more puzzling than this, that, that we can't reach to how it is, and that recognizing that language is about how we use it means we also have to recognize that that isn't a description of ultimately how it is. It's just a way of talking that enables us to get stuff done and understand what's happening. But we're not somehow describing an ultimate stuff out there. And the real puzzle is, how the hell does that work? How is it that we're able to do all of this amazing stuff with language and our scientific theories and all that, even though we can't reach through? And as a, to come back to what I was saying, I think the the what amazed me in my own uh, sort of development in this, I started from this seemingly implausible starting point, but it turns out that you can give an explanation of how it can work, even though it doesn't, you never get there, and we, none of us are ever gonna get there, you know that, don't you? There's never gonna be a correct answer to any of this stuff. We, we use it to do all sorts of things, we achieve all sorts of things, but we don't arrive, and understanding what's involved in doing that is 
puzzling and mysterious, but also fantastically exciting because it opens the world to a potential of how it might be otherwise. Thank you. I'm going to turn to questions just in a moment. I just want to ask you, Arif, really briefly on that one. Do you think that we will create an adequate theory? Are you convinced as well that we can do that in a way without discerning the, the meaning of everything? As yes, well? I, I, thi I think we can. So I'm persuaded by some, something that was implicit in what Ruth said, which is that the, the sort of touchstone of, of answering these questions is being able to solve particular puzzles, being able to predict various phenomena that we observe in language. That's the touchstone of scientific progress. That's how we answer these questions. And I don't share uh, Henry's scepticism that we can never answer these questions. There are right answers and wrong answers to philosophical questions. Some of them we already know. Some of them we don't, but some of them we don't. There's no reason why we can't reach them. And the inquiry will be partly philosophical and partly scientific. But um, I'm certainly optimistic that we can do that. Great. Well, that's wonderful. End on a note of optimism. That's brilliant. Well, some interesting points there, Charlie, and a fascinating topic. I'm sure it's a topic that we'll see in future debates and future festivals as well. Absolutely. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Philosophy for Our Times. If you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to like and subscribe on your platform of choice. And visit iai.tv for hundreds more podcasts, videos and articles from the world's leading thinkers. Let's jump into Peppa's world of play. Look for spring flowers, hunt for muddy puddles, and bravely explore exciting places with Peppa play sets. Peppa Pig. Inspiring kid confidence.